Welcome to the Untitled Podcast presented by Artsy. My name is Clara Andrade Pereira, Head of BAP Relations with Untitled Art, and I am pleased to introduce this conversation entitled The Supper Club, What Comes After. The Supper Club, What Comes After centers on artist Elia Alba's Supper Club, a multi-faith art project that has brought together more than 50 contemporary artists of color from the United States through portraiture, food, and dialogue. I am delighted to introduce today's participants, Elia Alba and Wanda Raimundi Ortiz, in a conversation moderated by Sarah Riesman. Thank you so much for joining our live programming at Untitled Art Podcast, and I hand the mic over to you now, Sarah. Okay, thank you. Clara, thank you so much for setting this up. Um, the Supper Club, What Comes After, is a conversation marking 10 years since artist Elia Alba began The Supper Club, a multifaceted art project that has involved Alba making iconic portraits of more than 50 contemporary artists of color while bringing them into conversation about critical issues of our time. What's that? No, that's gonna, I will hold the book up. Initiated in 2012, Alba began photographing artists of color to reflect their unique artistic voices, embody their art, and transform their identities into iconic portraits. Images behind mirror scrolling, you'll see a selection of portraits and images of dinners. In tandem with the portraits, Alba has hosted thematic dinner conversations, which have brought together artists, scholars, curators, and other cultural producers of diverse diasporic cultures to examine race and culture in the United States. Both an exhibition and a book published by Herma Verlag in partnership with the Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation, the Supper Club serves as a critical historical archive of the last decade, documenting African Americans, Latin Americans, Latinx, Africans, South Asians, and Caribbean cultural producers in dialogue as they weigh in on the enduring power of art, food, and conversation in our everyday lives. In the 10 years since Alba began the Supper Club, the broader discourse around race and equity has changed dramatically. We do know that. In light of both policing and the pandemic, resulting in a general shift in awareness, both nationally and in the cultural sector. The Supper Club, What Comes After, considers how critical discourse about race has changed and how socially engaged projects like the Supper Club have shifted in both meaning and impact in light of a heightened awareness of activism against, and activism against systemic racism. Before we get to talking, let me introduce Elia Alba and Wanda Raimundi Ortiz. Elia Alba is a multidisciplinary artist who works in photography, video, and sculpture. Her practice is concerned with the social and po political complexity of race, representation, identity, and community. Alba received a BA from Hunter College in 1994 and completed the Whitney Museum of Independent Study program in 2001. She has exhibited at museums internationally, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, Stedelijk Museum Amsterdam, Science Museum London, Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, DC, El Museo del Barrio in New York, ITAU Cultural Institute Sao Paulo, Matadero Madrid, National Museum of Art Reina Sofia, Madrid and the 10th Havana Biennale. Her work is in the collections of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, El Museo del Barrio, and the Low Art Museum, University of Miami. Alba's work has been reviewed by Forbes, Art Forum, Art News, and Cultured Magazine, among other publications. Her critically acclaimed book, Elia Alba, The Supper Club, Hermer 2019, brings together artists, scholars, and performers as, uh, of diasporic cultures through photography, food, and dialogue to examine race and culture in the US. She is artist in residence at the Andrew Friedman Home in the Bronx, New York, and was guest curator of El Museo del Barrio's recent exhibition, Estamos Bien La Trienal 2021. So welcome, Elia. Maybe we can give some like 
round of applause, welcome feelings, thank you. <laughs> it's a live audience after all. Uh, and then to my right and your left is Wanda Raimundi Ortiz. She's a discipline, interdisciplinary artist whose work has been recognized by University of Central Florida's Women of Distinction Award, UCF Luminary Award, Franklin Furness Award, USA Fellowship nomination, among others. Raimundi Ortiz earned her MFA in 2008 at Rutgers University Mason Gross School of Art. She was a Ralph Bunch Fellow and participated in the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture in 2002. Um, selected exhibitions include Constant Storm at the University of South Florida Contemporary Art Museum, Smithsonian, National Portrait Galleries Identify Performance as Portraiture Series, Project 35, Last Call at the Garage Museum in Russia, the Florida Prize in Contemporary Art, Orlando, Florida, Manifesta 8 in Spain, 2010, American Chambers, Gyeongnam Art Museum, South Korea, Performa 05 Biennial at Artist Space in New York, the S-Files 05, Musea de Art, Puerto Rico, Artists in the Marketplace, 25, Bronx Museum of the Arts. <laughs> it's a long list. She's very accomplished. But maybe what's more important to say more conversationally is that the Supper Club, as we lay out the structure of the project, it is Elia Alba's artwork, and we've both participated in it in very active ways. So maybe we can, I can set up a little bit about my relationship to Elia's work. We've been friends a long time. I think it was around 2009 that I posed for portraits that you did with masks. And they were masks, uh, it was a portrait where she painted different parts of my body, different skin tones with a mask. So it became this kind of idea of what is a hybrid identity, the complexity of race in every person's sort of embodiment. Yes. Um, and yes. so, so for me, that, that idea of mask making, using the mask to think about a transference of identity to embody somebody else's experience, or at least to think that through, um, was a starting point for me to understand her work. Um, and in 2012, you started taking photographs and doing dinners as the Supper Club. Um, and you had a vision to create these iconic portraits of artists of color in tandem with dinner conversations. So my question for you, and I, I point up above me, there's these images scrolling. They're images of dinners that Elia hosted to set up conversations about race and visual culture. 2012 was a very different moment than we're just about into 2022. So I wanna ask you, when you started, you started with portraits or dinners or both? Is one more important than the other? Thank you for that, all You're that, welcome. Sarah. Yeah, and you, and you, can, you can back up and say anything else that you'd like no, to no, say. No, no, that's fine, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, by the way, those port those, that picture that I took was actually 2006 oh, wow. when I started mixing. That's right. That's right. Making people right. all different races. Um, I think when I started, I, not I think, I started it as a phot photography project. That was like first the goal to, it was like as she said, 2012, I don't think in media we had enough people of color in publications the way we do now. Right. So I was like, well, I'm going to make it with my friends because I felt like the artists had so much to show that was beyond just their work you know it's it was also their personality and who they are and of course this is kind of too at the advent of social media where now we're, we're kind of engaged in people's not only their art but in their identity and and their their politics and they're kind of envisioned through photography so when i set out to do um those photographs it was actually with that intent first 
to just create like a, a zine. And it was always to be a publication, never necessarily to have photographs, but to create this kind of uh, a vanity fair, if you will, of, of artists. And what I did was I would look in, every photograph is different. I don't know if they're up here, but you could see some of them here. Um, Should we pass it around? You can, as long yeah. as they promise not to take no, it. No, don't take we it. Can't take, you can't take it away. We will find it's you. It's the only copy we, we have on site. We will find you throughout yeah. the fair, okay? It has an alarm. Um, yeah. So the, the photographs, um, the way they are, they're very unique because I, look, I was looking at the artists, um, not only their personality, but also the, their practice and wanting to make them an embodiment of their practice as well. And so... You know, I've gotten like, well, I can't tell that these are all your photographs. I think they all look like my photographs. But, <laughs> yeah. And so then the dinners was like, I was thinking like, well, I want to, it, since it's not just about the physical identity, it's also about how they think and feel. That's where the dinners came. And initially it was just going to be three dinners. Right. And then it wound up being like this long project for almost like eight years. Because the first dinners were very complex and I felt, wow, this needs to be um, unpacked even more. You know, I kind of felt as artists of color, we were all on the same page and we were not. And so that myself had me thinking too. And so it just, I think it started off when I continued to do the dinners to kind of educate myself, but it, then it just kept on growing and growing after that. And I, I guess uh, this is a good moment to point out that um, Wanda performed at the first three dinners yes. in, in character. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, okay. how that came about. Yeah, so, um, so when Ellie and I had first discussed the project, I thought it was fantastic and timely that someone was going to be taking up uh, this initiative to document us since no one else was really documenting us, not in a way that, um, that, could, that held any kind of real weight, right? Um, and I felt like that this project in her mind already was a really beautiful cross-section, not only of our friends, but of also like what was happening kind of in a, almost like in a parallel universe, right? Of, of yes. the art world. Yes. And so she gives me a call and she's telling me about these amazing dinners. Okay, that sounds fabulous, right? And I want Chuleta to host. What? Okay. What does that mean? So Chuleta's a persona, uh, an alter ego, if you will, that I created back in 2006 where I interrogate the art world, right, as a kind of urban hood chick, right, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I adopt not only the, the vestiment, but the persona. And when I'm in that character, my job is to stay in that character throughout the entire performance, right? And so she says that she wants Chuleta to host the dinners um, and kind of instigate conversations right instigate. you did very well <laughs> so what, what would that what would that instigation look like uh so okay so here's one that i didn't expect i i, I used a, i had a couple of prompts in my head and so you know you know what i'm just gonna do it right okay, i'll just yeah, do, it. Yeah, do it so you're sir um all right so who's your audience a question like that went one way and one dinner and went completely different the other day. So asking a group of people who's your, a group of artists of color, who's your audience, that's, those, that's like fighting words. That's like take off your earrings ready to go because this idea that artists of color have to identify their audience already creates a sort of separatism, right? Right. Um, that we have to kind of 
have the sort of multiplicity of marketing schemes or something. And so <laughs> when I um, when I dropped that bomb in front of one of our <laughs> one of the people in the book, it really almost sparked an argument. Um, some people chose to remain it silent. It sparked it though. It definitely sparked an argument. And what was the um, argument? Like what what was the problem? Well, one well where on one dinner people were very open to having that discussion. They were saying, okay, well you know what I make my work for these people. I make my work for blah blah blah. And people were very generous. I think they felt they were in a safe space. Right. A different configuration of artists were much more antagonistic at times. Um, why do I have to? Why do I have to tell you what my audience is? Nobody wants to go ask white people what their audience are. Da, 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 da. That kind of that kind of argument uh, was just kind of it was like dropping bombs, and and it was really interesting to see that depending on which which uh, grouping of artists were at the dinner tables, you had a very different reaction. There were some people that refused to speak. And I think it bears noting that the, that the dinners were recorded. And so a lot of people did not want to go on the record with their feelings about these things. Yeah, and when I wanted to publish some of the, some of the quotes or whatever, I, I got resistance from that. I mean, part of the reason for that, too, was that I promised them that certain things would not be documented, that what, when when I would publish a dinner, it would be just a important nuts and bolts, not like you trash talking an institution, right. an artist, or a situation. And, so, and, and let's back up, if, if we can, for a minute. The, the later supper clubs became more thematic, and yes. they, there were prompts that would be um, kind of, someone would be invited with a prompt. So some examples include Simone Lee prompted a conversation on black female subjectivity in 2017. And that, I think it was 17, and that conversation ended up being, um, well, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but these conversations had like themes that were very, very specific and would get very deep. So in that conversation, and it's in the book, there's, it's transcribed in the book, there's some moments of artists at the table complaining about the way in which the art um, establishment does not give proper criticism or doesn't address artists of color with proper criticism because of... Is it fear? Is it not taking it seriously? So there was a lot of discussion, and women black artists in particular. So there, was, there were these moments where kind of certain sentiments were exposed, and then there were questions later, like, do we really want that to go into the book? <laughs> and then yeah. we had one with, um, hosted by Derek Adams and um, Clifford Owens, and that was on black male subjectivity. We felt we had to do this kind of balance, and that was completely different in the sense that there wasn't this conversation about art, but more like, how do black men bond together? And, and, how, and how that plays out, not just in the art world, but how it just plays out in, in daily life. Right. It was actually quite a moving dinner. We had some teary-eyed men at the table. What was nice about having those prompts um, is that you could actually come somewhat like emotionally prepared to have the conversations. And one of the challenges of being chuleta um, instigating conversations that sometimes I didn't know what was going to happen like as the host the whole and in persona and trying to stay in character for sometimes you know upwards of three hours you know prompting poking at one point I, someone got a little bit fiery I literally snatched my wig off and hit her with my wig and then put it back on <laughs> to get her to stop. <laughs> and so it got a little, it felt like a little bit of a free-for-all, but I liked the later, the, the, way, the, the way the project evolved so that, it, you know, um, 
artists were invited specifically because of the gravitas of their work. We know, you know, intimately their interest in a particular subject. And so it, it felt more wrangled in. And there were some other, there was another dinner that I went to, not in persona, just as a participant, um, that it revealed some interesting biases even, right? So it opened up conversations about who was a Latinx artist or right. what is, you know, how do we define blackness in, in the Caribbean, in, in, among I, Caribbean artists, et cetera, et cetera. I think the theme of that dinner was um, racial subjugation in Latin American history, something like that, yeah. It's, it, it's, I think it's in that book, too. You yeah. know, it's all light fair, real yeah. easy, light yeah. conversation. Yeah. Dinner conversation. <laughs> it's easy, very easy. Yeah. Yeah. They, were, they, were never, they were never really light, and I think that everyone kind of expected, if they were going to participate, that you were, you were going to get the challenging questions, and you might find. But what I always found after the dinner was done, that people felt connected on some level. They yeah. felt like... Wow, that, I mean, I would never forget Simone walked out. That was intense, but that was so good. Because you felt maybe these were things you had on your chest and you needed to unpack. And those early dinners really addressed issues of agency, um, how artists identified. That was a very polarizing question because um, for the Latinos on the table yeah. that were you know, racially ambiguous, that was brought up. And then some people say, I'm black, I'm black all the time. This never comes on and off. And that created another, um, you know, another intense um, conversation. So, yeah, I mean, the dinners were, <laughs> I think every single dinner was in, right. intense, but it was always um, very uh, interesting, the outcome, um, and interesting how people reacted to it. And like I said, when I started, early on it was to contextualize the photographs and even like pushing up to 2014 it was a way for me to think about and unpack what I was feeling was happening amongst um, our you know amongst communities of color but then 2014 if you all remember that was the year of Mike Brown and Eric Garner and that was a switch and we still had a black president and I think those kinds of things started to um, be unpacked yeah. and it was at that point that it was I felt it was necessary to start um, uh, being more specific with the questions being more political with the questions too and then around 2015 15. is when Sarah who had been following the project since its inception um, approached me to to work yeah. at the institution she was working at at right. the time. And at the time, I was just starting a position at the Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation in New York City and was charged with putting together an exhibition program. And so I approached Elia. She was the first meeting about doing shows there. And I said, please come to the, our space. Can we do a show of the Supper Club portraits? And at that point, you might have had 20-some portraits done. Yeah. And so in about half, yeah. halfway through. So there were at that, the goal was to do about 50 or 60. And so she said, well, it's not really a show, Sarah. <laughs> it's a book. I'm doing a book. So we, we worked together for the next four years on the project. And we hosted together, organized um, probably 15 dinners at, our, at the foundation space at that time. So 
Um, the dinners had 20 people usually. Up to, we had a certain set of rules because we could have up to 20 people together. That's how many people could actually hear each other in a conversation. It's like once you got past that, the sense of intimacy was lost, and it would be hard to hear somebody all the way over there, right? Um, and, and then there, were, there was somebody who would do a prompt, and usually the night before or a few days before, we'd circulate some readings for people to refer to um, to, to kind of set them up for the prompt. Um, and, and it bears noting that she cooked the food. She cooked the food, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. yeah. Let me get an applause, please. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> she and was her, her famous empanadas. And, and I, that was yeah. the signature, you know, like you sign an artwork. I, my empanadas were the signature for yes. every meal, no matter what I was cooking. But, yeah. So. And why, tell us why, like, why did you decide to put food in the mix? I think it's really important, but it may not be obvious. So it started off going to restaurants. The first three dinners were funded by an organization called Recess, and they're based in New York City. They're actually in Brooklyn right now. And um, I just felt, I was just thinking about my upbringing and how food is so like important. You know, it, it's, it brings people together. Um, at a table, it just relaxes people. There was always plenty of alcohol too, so people can relax. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Some people got loose. <laughs> so people, and believe it or not, people got sometimes a little too loose. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, "I didn't say that." I'm like, "Rewind." Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, but in 2014, again, is when, with all those things that were happening. Um, I mean, we did have Trayvon Martin, but I think 2014 yeah. was such a shift. I mean, that's when Black Lives Matter started as well. Mm -hmm. And not that it, it, it was being done in tandem or it was being thought. Like, I knew, but I think we all knew. I think as a collective community, we knew that change just had to happen. There was a different urgency at that there point. Very yeah. different yeah. urgency yeah. at that time. So I felt that the way to do that, if I want people to talk about these things, I have to give them something back. And I felt food was the way to bring people together. I mean, just food is, how uh, you said in the intro, you know, the, imp the power of food and art. Yeah, and, and I think dialogue. It, yeah, and I think it also set people at ease, right? You're, you're having, we, were, we weren't eating like crudités. We were having comfort food. And it was something yes. about very, something very maternal, very, you know, she'd come around and serve you and you're getting like this, you know, comida criolla, right? And yeah. so, um, and it, it was something that, that if you feel like you can trust the space that you're in. And I think creating a safe space um, yes, that was, was, that's was a good way to was say vital, it. was really, really vital to get people to open up, to be in this vulnerable position, not just as art makers, because as art makers you're vulnerable, but also like we're sharing and we're being recorded. Um, and so we're watching these things unfold and we are the, as, art, as artists, art makers, we're also the change makers, you know, the agents for change. But what if we can't have these conversations safely, right? We know, because we already, every time we go out into the world to make our work, we're in an unsafe space. Let right? me ask, let me ask. So then okay. how does, so then we needed to create that kind of safety to, to, to be able to talk freely. Sorry to interrupt. I want to ask a question just in terms of like, throughout this conversation, what I'd like to map out is 2012 to 2022, how things have changed. Do you have feelings about how things have changed vis-a-vis -vis freedom of expression? Like, I, I feel like that's starting to change as a curator and institutionally. I think there's more freedom. <laughs> and I'm not sure, I may have something to do with the pandemic or it may have something to do with 
the politics of the last two years? I, I think there, I think there is uh, more freedom. I think people are feeling more comfortable. Um, I'd have to say that that pivotal time in 2014 facilitated what we have now. Right. You know, I'm not saying my project alone. I mean, just in general, we were already in that mindset. So we do have more freedom to speak, but you know, we're still dealing with too many systemic and structural issues within society right. to say that we're completely free and that we can able to, to, to move on. So I guess that brings the question of where do we go next with this project, right? Well, we're not, I don't know. Oh, she's yeah. not there yet, we have, sorry. We have, we have questions, I mean, <laughs> okay. I have questions. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, we didn't really talk about how you decided where to start with the portraits. And as I'm looking at this audience, I see, um, Juana Valdez, yeah. over there, <laughs> who looking. I photographed. She's in the book. Yeah, we got some celebrities in the house. Yeah, yes. Juana Valdez in the <laughs> Rochelle Mosman, another yes. celebrity, and Nicola Wise. They were both photographed. Right. So maybe talk about if you could talk about like their the monikers that you gave them and what that that I kind of giving them a sort of not that you gave them their identity, but but kind of articulating it through the naming and the portrait and the so set. the naming and the actual portrait was really based a lot on their artistic practice and how I interpreted that artistic practice. But it wasn't just me deciding randomly. There was definitely a collaborative effort with all the artists that I say, well, are you com this is what I'm thinking. Are you comfortable with that? Or like with Juana, I wanted to shoot in New York. She says, no, you got to come to Miami, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and, we did, and, and we did that, you know. And so it really was based on um, their artistic practice and what they brought into the conversation. And then the moniker was a reflection of that as well. So for instance, Nicola Y is the Kaisonian, and that has a lot to do with her Trinidadian heritage, um, because Kaiso is a form of music that originated in, in Trinidad. You know, Juana was the Orisha. <laughs> in blue, and in, in like aquamarine. And aquamarine blue, <laughs> looking up into the heavens. But that has a lot to do with, you know, the kind of work that she does, dealing with like the transnational and the crossing of borders through water. And um, Rochelle, who's here, I can't remember your title. <laughs> oh my God. No pressure. I think None at all. philosopher? <laughs> no, no, she's not the philosopher. Yeah. I'll remember yeah. it later. But again, that had to, because a lot of uh, the uh, earlier portraits of Rochelle at the time dealt, um, I found that they were very psychological portraits, but almost like going down a rabbit hole, right. <laughs> kind of. Right. And so she became like an Alice in Wonderland type figure. That's true. Um, um, so over the course of the project, now it's 10 years. Are there specific dinners that you felt were especially meaningful in relation to broader discourse around race? And just along those lines, how do you think the context, social, political, and creative, changed in the first years or from the first years? Um, yeah, so the first years were really about um, artists and how they felt about their own agency. Again, we have to think of 2012 as a, as a time where you didn't see, I mean, I'm walking through all these fairs and there's so many black and brown artists. That was not the case in it 2012. Um, and so the conversations then revolved around artists' agency, 
who, who are you making your work for? Um, how do you identify? How do you inhabit these spaces that, that really don't allow you in, especially when it comes to something like a fair or a, an institution? But, you know, it, it really wasn't so much a shift from, okay, now there's getting, now there's more visibility. It really, the shift happened politically. And I think 2014, I didn't have that um, dinner at, at the Rubens, but I did have it. Um, actually, my friend has a beautiful home and she just lent me her home to do it. And um, it was 2014 and I noticed with all those people at the table that their work was about to change. Sean Leonardo was a classic example yeah. of that, yes. who was working um, with hyper-masculinity. And I remember he sat at the table um, complaining because someone wanted to talk about the environment. And he said, well, if before I talk of the environment, I have to worry that, I'm not, that, that a bullet is not gonna come through my head. And I, I just knew at that moment that his work was about to shift in this political which it has tremendously yeah. Yeah. so um, that's just like one example um, of how I think the big shift happened yeah. so I find that 2014 dinner and it was an amazing dinner I had Coco Fusco Lorraine O'Grady Saya Wolfock um, Caleb Lindsay I mean I'm trying to think who else was at that dinner uh, Nicola why <laughs> Um, I, I see you. <laughs> yeah, Nicola Y. I think Derek Adams was at that dinner as well. Sean Leonardo, who I mentioned. What? Yeah, Jared Badera, who's showing here at the fair too. Yeah. Um, so it was a very, very powerful, powerful dinner. Oh, and you were there too. <laughs> yeah. Rochelle, you were there in 2014. Yeah. So, Wanda, do you have any comments or kind of I, response to the question about how the how the context has changed in terms of race in terms of race and art my personal art making or just in general i think it more generally and you can talk specifically too um, to you. so i think it's a double-edged sword right so i think at least for me personally um i feel like um we're definitely having more space and agency to speak about the things that trouble us as artists of color um how we self-identify what that looks like in the, in in the greater context but then I think the other side of it is, okay, well, you said what you're going to say. Now I feel emboldened to strike also because now I feel I can say what I want to say, right? And I'm saying this as, as someone who, in case you didn't notice by my accent, I kind of come from the Bronx, right? But I now live in Orlando. Boogie down. Yeah. You, the, the, bo the boogie down. Boogie, boogie, the boogie, boogie, boogie down. down. But I live in Orlando now. So when I was making work in New York City, I had, you know, I have, there's this one thing, right? But now I'm living here. And I'm living, I'm living in Florida with people that are also feeling pretty emboldened to challenge the conversation about blackness in the art world and blackness in the Caribbean, blackness and da 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 If I say that I'm Afro-Latina, people get hung up on my light skin and my hair texture or whatever, not knowing that my great-grandmother's black. And so they might get, get, get caught up on my skin and ask me whether or not I have the right to claim that or push and, and, and so what has happened to my practice is where I, where I traffic in doing public performance, I don't really feel like I wanna do public performance right now because I don't know if someone is gonna take it upon themselves to correct me, to break the fourth wall, to interrupt the performance, to stop what I'm doing um, because they don't, you know, because maybe 
they don't want to hear that black lives really matter, that they're going to try to all lives matter me, right? And so I don't necessarily feel as, not that I don't want to defend and speak, because I will defend and speak, but I also know that I have to pick and choose my battles, because at the end of the day, before being an artist, before being anything, I'm a mom, I'm a, I'm a light-skinned, I'm a say it in hood, I'm a light-skinned mom to a black boy. So I need to make sure that my Puerto Rican ass gets home to stay being his mother and I don't end up in the hospital or someplace else. And so that has shifted my practice considerably. So while we are in a space where we can, we're having a lot bigger conversations, um, which I'm super, super glad for, there are also a lot of people that feel like we need to be put back in our place and are not afraid to do so. And so that is a lot of pushback. A lot of pushback. But we've where, seen you know, this throughout history, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we've yeah. Seen, we, we, I mean, we kind of always knew it would kind of come to this. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's comp I think it's complicated now. And it's, it's unfortunate that you've stopped doing performances because I love all of them. Um, but it's, it's, a it's a real thing. It's real. It it's is real. It's real. Though, and I'll say this. At one of my performances, and I, not that I want to take away from that, but I want to contextualize. In addition to doing the work that I did for Elia, I've done, I did a performance called the Pieta, Pieta Project in which I held 33 people of color for three minutes, 33 seconds. And I was referencing 33 as the age of, that Jesus Christ was at, at his execution. And the impetus for that project is the, was the birth of my son and knowing that his skin color is a dangerous place for him to live in, okay? Where I know what my skin color has afforded me, the privileges that I have, and that he does not get to escape that. As, you know, he will be in this space. And I thought about it and thinking about all mothers of black children, black women, black parents, and even if you're not, if you have a blended family, but all of a sudden you know that your skin's child, uh, your child's skin color is dangerous for them to live in. And I thought about that now I'm, now that I'm a parent and now I'm among that group of, that group of people that did, every parent fears for their child, but there's an extra layer because they have sometimes, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And my son is raised, and I'm raising my son in the shadow of where Trayvon Martin was killed, just about 20 miles away from my home. And um, maybe less. And so I started thinking, um, not that I'm going to indoctrinate y'all into Catholicism. I'm a recovering Catholic. I say that openly all the time. Yeah. <laughs> just for a little levity. Um, I thought about Mary and her, she, she knew the inevitability of her son's fate, right? How that was an inescapable fate. And I think about my son and the inevitability of what, what's to come, right? Being profiled, being told that he's less than, people assuming that he cheated on the test or any of those things that could possibly, that he's going to encounter all the different ways that uh, inequality is going to touch him. And I can't stop that. And I thought about how people of color are not allowed to grieve communally when we see something happen to, some, to one of our own, right? When we see what happened to Eric Garner, we see what happened to um, uh, George Floyd, et cetera, et cetera, and people tell us that we cannot grieve. Well, it, it, that's not you. Well, it could be, and that's the problem. And so I wanted to create a space of safety, and so I did this three-minute, this 120-minute this, this uh, performance. But I mention all of that because in one of those performances in my hometown at the university where I teach, in a rotunda, I was afraid that someone could shoot me 
on that college campus because I had my back exposed, my front exposed, multiple points of entry in the South. And I said, what if someone comes and beats the shit out of me right now while I'm sitting there holding people and everybody is in this holding pattern? And I felt extremely vulnerable in that space. And it's because of those moments that I'm like, I, 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 have, I have a job to do that's bigger than performing in public, and that's to make sure I raise my baby. You know, my job is to make sure I get to his college graduation in one piece, <laughs> right? So yeah, things yeah. have changed for me. So things bit. have changed. And I, th I wanna ask you, Elia, and I wanna phrase this in the right way, but I think um, you, you decided to do something about race and visual culture as a Latinx woman. And I think that the, that identity has been interesting as a kind of, uh, in the way that it relates to blackness. And I don't know if you wanna comment on that, what that has meant in terms of how the project is understood or what it's enabled you to do with the project? Uh, well, I'm like a product of the 60s, so <laughs> I grew up, you know, looking at young lords and Black Panthers working together. And that, I think, also influenced the work to some degree. Yeah. And um, as a Latinx woman, and which is one of the discussions we had, like, well, you can't be Latinx and you can't be black at the same time, which is not possible. <laughs> I always go back to um, the Black Panthers and, yeah. and um, the Young Lords working together and, and people just doing, doing that. So I think that that was very um, important to yeah. me. And that, that spirit is what I wanted to bring in to the conversation to the conversation. You know, when I speak to some of my friends, you know, my, my, you know, my African-American friends, they said, yeah, girl, we all mix. We just, you know, some just come out darker than others, but that's, <laughs> that's the product of the Americas, you know? Right. And it is different for me. I do have a privilege with my skin tone. That's, those are facts. I can infiltrate in a way that someone that's darker cannot. So I'm very aware of that. But I'm also aware that I am still, you know, that I am a black woman in America and these things, and that people, because they perceive me a certain way, um, assume that they can tell me fucked up shit. Sorry. <laughs> Listen, lay it I'm out. sorry. I'm sure I shouldn't have said that on, on iPod, on the it can, iPad. It can be bleeped or not. Uh, they'll bleep nah, it. They'll bleep before. it. They'll yeah. bleep it. I hope not. But anyway, so <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, it was all, you know, it was. The impetus is like the conversations my parents were having, you know, being immigrants, you know, being black immigrants, being mixed immigrants coming into this country. You know, my dad, like also something that's very pivotal to me is that my dad came to this country in the 50s and it really changed for him the way he saw himself, because I think up until that point, he was not seeing himself as a black man. And, and I remember this as clear as day when I was like maybe 10 or 11, he said to me, you know, I became a black man in America. I became a black man here. And he didn't say it with resentment, he said it with a lot of pride because I think up until that point, you know, when you're told you're not that and you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing something else and then you come here, you, you become embraced in who you really are, that's like a really powerful thing. And so it's all those things that were, that were all the thoughts coming into to putting this project together. So 
I do have a few more questions, but I want if there are questions from the audience, we can take them as we go. Um, so you can just give me a signal if you if you do have a question. Um, Ten years of dinners. How many dinners have there been? Almost forty. Almost forty dinners. And how many people have participated? Do you think like there are artists who are in these portraits? Fifty some artists in this. Fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. And then at every dinner, if there's anywhere from like seven to 25 people, we're talking about... Round it off to 20 times. I'd say, I'd say between five and 600 people. Right. That's a lot of patelillos. Right. That was a lot of <laughs> so, empanadas. Right, right. <laughs> so, two, I mean, two questions. Like, what do you think this project changed? And, and then the other question is, do you, will you keep going on with the dinners in the same way? The dinners are exhausting, emotionally very, very exhausting. And I think you knew that. I was yeah. always like kaput the following day. Yeah. I don't know. I feel um, I was in conversation with my contemporaries, who some of them have now become like superstars, yeah. like Simone Lee, Derek Adams. You know, those are my contemporaries at the time. Um, I'd like to, I feel like it's time to pass the baton, but then at the same time, I don't think it can keep the same structure because we're dealing with what the, the beautiful example that Wanda just gave us, the conversations need to, to, to shift. Like how, you know, because then there's whole thing about cancel culture too, right. which, yeah. which is great on some levels and on some levels it's not. But that, yeah, and that's interesting because a lot of what was said in the conversations, I, sat, I was part of maybe 15 dinners as facilitating. I was usually the only white person at the table, which was interesting. I would say it was a kind of... And people complained. I know. Why is that white woman there? Because I mean, she, she's helping us out, man. Yeah. That's as why. Because she's paying for it. She well, paying I wasn't for it. paying for it, but as if, as, if, as if I was... They didn't know my name. But that was <laughs> the way I yeah. said it. Yeah. She's paying for it, girl. Yeah. You need yeah. to calm yeah. down. Well, well, but, yeah. Slow your roll. But I want to say that what was really... I, the reason I approached Elia partly to do the project in the space of the Rubin Foundation was because... When, I, when she started talking about it, I thought, I really want to go to that dinner. <laughs> but, I, but I also felt it was really important to think about how does this reach more people? How can a kind of, of course, there's the internal conversation that needs to happen amongst people of color without any apology to white people, right? But there, or without any, like, a, without having to be self-conscious about the effect of the words to, to sort of articulate, but at the same time, there does need to be some sharing out of the, or I think there's value in sharing out the, what has been said, and that's why the book was so important to publish. And there was a sharing out. We yeah. had a dinner, um, I don't know, it was Sir Rodney Sir it hosted called, it. It was called um, What Would an HIV Doula Do? Which is, What Would an HIV Doula Do? Question mark Is the name of a collective that's, I think, based in New York City of AIDS activists, uh, activists who are dealing with like community care. That was a fantastic dinner. It was a yeah. great dinner. And, you know, a lot of them are people living with HIV and that doesn't have a race. So why would we, you know, because the conversation was going to revolve, it did revolve around race and HIV. But, you know, as Sir, being a black man, said I, these people need to be part of this conversation, right. which is going back to yeah. what, you, what you said before. Right. And so and in that instance, just for clarification, a lot of the discussion was about the way in which HIV is criminalized when it relates to people of color and the way in which it's just cared for if it's 
not, right? If it's, if it's like white people with HIV versus people of color. I mean, it's not down the line, but there is a difference in the way that it's treated on a community level, depending on the community. Yeah, and we unpack that history. Yeah. You know, HIV at the very beginning of the 80s, the face of HIV was usually white gay men, when in actuality it was affecting very deeply men, uh, black and brown men of color, and that was just like never... That wasn't the face. It was. It wasn't really discussed. So that even that question was even that history was unpacked, which was really great, and it's reflective in 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 the, in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Another conversation I wanted to mention. There's actually two. We did a conversation around Pulse Orlando, right. which is also and and we talked about Sanctuary. the low visibility that that had, even though it was a person who went in there and killed 50 people. It didn't get the same amount of press. It's almost like it, you know. Yeah, I want to say to something as, as the You're resident there, right? Um, I, I was invited to uh, submit an essay for Hyperallergic about about this moment, um, and what I noticed is that I felt that that it's going to sound really awful, and I probably shouldn't be saying this. But I'm going to say, I, you know what? I don't apologize. For Not these as things. bad as me cursing say, on this. No, podcast. I always say what I'm going to say, and I'll stand by my word. Um, I felt that. Although there was it 50, was it, oh, 49 people passed away, 49. right? Um, uh, they didn't pass away, they were murdered. Let's say that, Let's, let me just yeah. clarify. Um, how many were Latino, right? And it became like a white male gay thing, right? I felt like it was co-opted when I was, when I, would, when I went to the, um, I think the, the third memorial that, was, that, was, that happened in Orlando, the third one was the first one that was, uh, the memorial was done in Spanish. So you're like, you have all these Spanish-speaking folks that were killed and all these Spanish-speaking families that were in grieving and all of the memorials, all the services were written, were written and they were produced in English, right? English language. Um, it, was, it was really strange. I thought it was being co-opted. Right. So I felt like all queer lives matter kind of a thing. It's like, no, 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 no. Understand, this was a very specific target. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that, that queer folks shouldn't be grieving in general because obviously that was the, the thing that bound everyone, but it was sort of... Even that was washed away, right? Where it wasn't, these are like, these are like black Puerto Ricans, black Mexicano, Mexicano, yeah, there was like what? a whole group of people. And how are you gonna just kindly push that aside? You know, and I, I found that was really, really, I was actually very upset. I'm just kind of watching and just like, kind of shaking my head. And, well, the, yeah. at the dinner that we did in response to that. Sanctuary um, and safety? It was called, um, yep. uh, <laughs> I'm trying, so Edwin Ramoran, who is um, a dear friend who lives in Southern California, came out to prompt the conversation. He's somebody who's a, a DJ, he goes by DJ Curator, and um, he prompted a conversation about sanctuary, and it was with two questions. Like, what, what does a sanctuary space, like what constitutes a sanctuary space, and how do we create that? And the answers were like, a lot, I mean, it was so emotional to hear from everybody at the table, yeah. We all cried because yeah. no one felt safe. Yeah. That's, that was the thing. You can create sanctuary spaces, but even within, which is what Pulse Orlando was. Exactly. And if we, if we know the history of dance culture and clubs, you know, I was a fan of Paradise Garage. I did a project on that. That was yeah. another sanctuary space for black and brown queer um, folks. And so, you know, that was that thing. And that's, I think, why everyone cried because yeah. no one feels that they're safe. So yeah. I, I will um, 
pose one last question to my panelists, and, and it is, how has, like, you both have, you, you have work in the fair, right? Yes, she has right. work in the fair. You have work in the fair. <laughs> she has work in the fair. At <laughs> Elena Simone's booth, C... C23. 23, and, um, and it's very different work, and I think you, you gave us kind of an overview of Chuleta's role in the performance in 2012 and what that looked like, and now you've explained, Wanda, that, you, that you're no longer performing, like the performance has sort of migrated into sculptural installation, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how your work's changed in the last years in relation to the Supper Club or, or otherwise? Sure, yeah. So um, I, I got a chance to reprise my, my role as Chuleta when the book launched in 2019. At the Studio Museum so, in Harlem. Yeah, at the Studio yeah. Museum in Harlem. So Chuleta also matured yes. as the project matured so did the character she was wearing a really so, good suit so she <laughs> is, you know she wore a pantsuit in homage to AOC who's yeah. the, this character you know my street thugged out uh, self-taught art expert um, and art critic uh, <laughs> she grew up she wore her white pantsuit uh, she's the character is now teaching in college uh, she she married a white guy eventually, I guess. Right? So it's like a whole it's a hot mess. Um, um, but what has also happened is that um, I find that performing that voice was no longer authentic because I have grown, I have changed, I've settled into my suburban Subaru lifestyle. That you know, and and that's it's a real thing. Um, you got to get around. You got to get around, and it's got to be done safely, right? Because yeah. you know. Um, safest car on the road. Yeah. Um, and, um, but also, I've, um, because I don't really want to be in these spaces, that doesn't mean that I don't want to be seen as an art maker. So um, if you look at the trajectory of my other works, and my, my moniker in the book is the, is the thespian, because uh, performance and acting and storytelling is so much a part of who I am. Um, the work that I make, these, the reinas, are all all of the queens all in all wear these giant crowns that I've that I've made with um, hair extensions and found objects, and um, but I started thinking between the Trump, uh, what was that a presidency? Is that what that was? Um, Something. Um, between uh, 45's uh, presidency and then the plan the pandemic, and I I just to me it just felt like an incredible pressure cooker. And I decided, like everybody else did, learn how to make sourdough and start throwing things in the ground and hoping that they would grow. Um, and I failed miserably. Um, I just had this, I had this realization that um, we, as people, think that we have dominion over stuff, right? I thought if I just put things in the ground, I live in Florida, right? I've got sun, I've got water. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> well, if you don't pay attention, everything can go wrong. And that's what, was, that, that's what was revealed through my gardening, where I would just put things in the ground. I thought if I just put some organic mulch or whatever, that things would grow well. But if I handled things too much, the pressure of me handling damaged my crops or the pressure of too much sun and I, I didn't understand that there was such a thing as too much sun burned my crops that there was such a thing as too much water the you know powdery mildew ruined my crops bugs I planted things when things are starting little critters are starting to lay eggs ruined my crops but nature keeps trying to grow even through the pressure and so 
I, I said, well, what if my wigs didn't need me anymore? What if my wigs mutated? <laughs> right? Like the way our society is mutating. Too much pressure on either side and nature is trying to grow. Our people are trying to grow. Society is trying to grow. Children are trying to grow. But, the, but there's, it's growing warped, right? And so I thought, well, you'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to do a public presentation, and yet here I am. Right? Thank you for doing it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I feel safe. Yeah. So, um, but I, 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 I started making these objects, and I used the materials that I would have normally made a wig out of, but I also started to let them grow. I didn't, I didn't dominate what was happening. I, so I, I do what any normal person does, right? I go, I get a bunch of scrap wood and start painting things. I grab some spray foam, and you can't control spray foam. So I wanted to test my resilience and my flexibility and see if I could adapt to what was happening in the sculptures. And it ended up, the, the trees, they ended up looking like the trees that grow in my backyard and that, that line the streets of my town, right? Um, so I used spray foam and repurposed um, hair extensions, um, gold, uh, gold leaf, beads, uh, uh, found objects and they've they've made their way into my objects and so into my sculptures now and so now I have things that can hold my place so that I can I can be in conversation but at a safe distance and you've so been, yeah so kind sort of, of like a, you've deflected it a bit yeah like, or, or kind of moved it outside of yourself yeah because yeah. that, that's the other thing is that the pressure the intimacy the close space was so much that it's affecting my body like I, I can't sit and hold a 240-pound sobbing person anymore. It, I, I walk away. I've got nerve damage. I've got spine damage. I can't do it anymore. So the, the objects can do Wrong it for answer. me. Thank you. And hopefully they'll be here next year. Yes. <laughs> Putting the wish out there. Um, Manifest. Elia, you, so maybe we can end with just, um, you have work in a booth, and it's sculptural. It's very, very different than these portraits yes. that are scrolling above us. Can you so talk about them? I've started um, making these sculptures that, that are hands. And what I do is I do, I, before the Supper Club, I've done a lot of sculptural work through, photo through a photo transfer process. And so I would photograph someone's hand and make it into a three-dimensional object. It's another, I consider it another form of uh, representation through a person's hands because I feel like all those implicit gestures we do say a lot about who we are and they're usually done through our hands. So they're kind of boxed in to make them look like relics almost to safeguard that movement, safeguard or, um, and even elevate um, those, those gestures that we take for granted. And kind of like what I did with the photographs, um, because it's people that I know, I take into consideration who they are, what they do, but this is a way more subjective. You know, there's no collaboration. I'm taking your hands and then I'm gonna do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I adorn them and it could be symbolic to a conversation I had with them or you know, some of them are hand stitched. So I'm still continuing with um, representation, but going back to my sculptural roots, which I felt during the 10 years that I was working on that project, I kind of neglected, I pretty much neglected it, even though I was doing, I also make dolls. Do, I love dolls. They're beautiful, y'all. Y'all should buy some. But I don't, I don't really show them. They're, they're, it's just I make, that's kind of like a thing that makes me relax. You know, I'll make clothes, and they're, 
they have beards and <laughs> you know they're just my own thing maybe one day i'll show them they're they really are beautiful Thank please you, go Wanda. see them <laughs> so the hands are i have a couple of them in elena simone booth c23 so I think that's we're at time in terms of it being 2.01. If we have time for a few questions, I don't know. If anybody know, has a Clara, question uh, if, before um, we wrap it up. We can also speak informally. What do you think? I'm looking to you. Are we? Yeah. Are there questions? For either artist? If any of you have any questions, please. Yeah. Come here, don't be shy. <laughs> the book is here as well for yeah. you later yeah. to check it in. Well, I just want to say big thanks to Untitled for hosting us and for working with us on this technical setup and getting Elia's slides yes. up. And thank you, Elia and Wanda, for being in conversation together and re you know revisiting this project, which I, it's not over. No, it's not <laughs> over. It's not over, and it's such an important work. And I just congratulations, yeah. Thank yeah. you so much yeah. for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone.